Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daney. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed plus lots of bonus content including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A you will also get bonus content every month including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN so do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so maybe even strangers in the street love you So look, your eyes don't deceive you when you clicked on, selected the big interview. I guess what you expected to get was the big interview and you did. It's Graham. Nice to have you back. Speaking about having somebody back, fantastic to have had Jamie Carragher back on the big interview, returning five years since he first appeared on our show. That day he was just like Gary Neville, our first ever interview in the big interview. Um, he was in Sky. Um, he was preparing for Monday Night Football. We sat in a little recording booth and I enjoyed it very much indeed. But I had the distinct impression that Jamie was thinking, what is this strange format? Who is this strange guy that I normally only see across the, the editorial floor on Sky Television? It was good. It was enjoyable. But I think he was still getting... Um, Trying to take my measure. Well, he's done so since. We uh, worked together in Madrid to interview uh, Xavi Hernandez. That was great fun. And a couple of months ago, Jamie phoned saying, look, could you give me a little bit of your ideas and thoughts and information about uh, the Wembley match, the Champions League final of 2011 when Barca beat Manchester United? I'm writing this book. So he did. Um, he was very kind in terms of including my thoughts in the book. He sent it to me. I read it. It's very, very good. And it and it, um, it catches a particular fascination of mine in that now when I'm analysing games to try and write an article or analysing games using uh, Scout or YouTube in order to better present on La Liga television, the rabbit hole, the, 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 the warren of things that you can dive into if you're interested in retrospective analysis of of matches of themes of moves there's so much to discover there including your misconceptions not only whether on the night in the hurly burly you got something wrong but also whether time has dimmed or even just taken and mangled and spat out your recollections jamie Carragher um seized on this as a theme and put together his book the greatest games and we used that as a as a reason to get back in touch with him. So this episode, we'll talk about the the concept of the greatest games and it will start with something very dear to his heart because he was at Everton against Bayern Munich in the Cup Winners' Cup when uh, Everton went and won that tournament. And it's a perfect example of how going back to something that was for him a cherished childhood memory he found out very different things about the rough and tumble of playing not against Everton, 
um, but against that Bayern Munich and how misconceptions about silky, poor old Bayern Munich were booted all over the park by Everton. <laughs> Not a bit of it. So our talk is about um, that night, or those nights, one in Bavaria, one at Goodison, when Everton went through and knocked out a classic Bayern Munich side. But it's also about the art of punditry. I'm talking about um, Andy Gray, Gianluca Viali, to Jamie and, and Gary uh, with Dave Clark, and originally with Ed Chamberlain on Sky. Listen to this episode, enjoy it. Uh, buy the greatest games for the football fans in your life, either for Christmas or at any other opportunity. But also please check out our new YouTube channel where you can find audio of all our old interviews, plus lots of video clips from more recent guests. You're going to enjoy Jamie Carragher, this time talking about his version of the greatest games. And there are some corkers in there. This is the big interview and um, I'm quite pleased and proud to not only have a guest this afternoon from whom you're guaranteed intelligence and football character, but we're going back to our origins because Jamie Carricker, as I've already explained to him this afternoon, featured in one of the early interviews and I remember him sitting across the desk from me in a sound booth in Sky and the words were good and the debate was good but the eyes were saying... Well, this is one weird cookie I'm talking to here. Hopefully over the years that that, that feeling has uh, has been erased or developed. And for anyone who's able to look at this tape of the interview, this is Jamie's exceptional book called The Greatest Games. I'm not going to talk too much about explaining it because he's going to do that for himself. First of all, uh, Jamie, uh, you're a popular and talented man. Thank you, for, thank you for sharing your afternoon with us. Although I suppose... Of a Friday afternoon, week after week, you probably get that yearning to think, I'm going to give Graham a wee phone and just talk football with him. And, and th- thankfully, it's today we can we can actually do that job. No better time and place. No better people either. Jamie, the, the, the greatest games, first of all, um, so that I don't have to, explain to our listeners the concept of this book, um, handsomely produced and featuring, I think, six or seven words from me. What, what was behind... Um, your idea to write this? Well, I've always been a big reader of football books and not necessarily footballers' autobiographies, even though, of course, I've read them. But I, I do read certain football books. I I remember a, a good few years ago now, I read uh, The Italian Job by Gabriel Marcotti and Gianluca Vialli. I've read a couple of football books by uh, Michael Cox, who's, you know, you know really good analyst on uh, football and... Uh, Mr. Zonal Markin. There was one, I think it was called Brilliant Orange or something about Dutch football. It's a sensational book, yeah. I've always read those type of books and I've always thought I'd like to do a book about football but not an autobiography because I'd done one of those about 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of people doing two or three of them, <laughs> as people do. So it basically come to me uh, because of the work I do on Monday Night Football, analysing games, and on the back of what we've been doing with our own podcast, uh, The Greatest Games, where we ask a guest to come on, and probably similar to what you do, and then at the end we ask what the greatest game is. And it was almost, why not let's look at some great games and, and give them the Monday Night Football treatment and really analyse them the way you know the game is now. With obviously uh, interviews with the, the biggest people involved and, and see what we could come up with, and you know, we're quite pleased with it. I'm going to list um, the chapters, they run like this in order 
Um, Liverpool 4, Barcelona 0. Everton 3, Bayern Munich 1. Liverpool 0, Arsenal 2. Already you can see the skipping across generations, from the most modern to some of your youngest memories. England uh, 5-1 in Germany. England 4-1 at home at Wembley to Holland in Euro 86. Liverpool 3, Everton 2. Manchester United 2, Bayern Munich 1 in 99 in Camp Nou. Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3. Manchester City 3, QPR 2. Aguero. Barcelona 3, Manchester United 1, which is the Wembley 2011 final. And, of course, in there, the climax, the centrepiece, AC Milan 3, Liverpool 3. Before we go into one or two of the specific chapters, Jamie, one of the things that emerges most quickly is this idea about unreliable memory, unreliable narrative, the way in which football matches sometimes on the night and the day after get mistold or misseen. Of course, it leads to endless uh, debate at the time. But legends grow. And, and the way that legends grow is obviously part of the way that football grabs your heart because it isn't just the 90 minutes. You need heroes and you need villains. You need perceived flops, perceived brilliance. And I know that in starting out, and I think through it too, it was on your mind constantly. Am I going to look back and find that there were more warts than beauty spots? Is that true? Yes, I think that's always the case. And... I actually spoke to Teddy Sheringham about that because I interviewed him for uh, the 99 chapter in the Camp Now and England-Holland. And he said he didn't like watching games back because he never played as well as he thought he'd played and it almost ruins the memory. And throughout the summer, we all got very nostalgia, uh, nostalgic because of obviously COVID and lockdown and the old games were getting played. And he said one of the few games he actually enjoyed watching back was the... Euro 96 game of England-Holland, uh, really. So it was it was interesting that because I always feel as a player, we come away from games and think we've played well and other games we think we've played poorly. It's never as good as you think and it's never as bad as you think when you look back at a game. But I think you're right. I think the narrative around football games a lot of the time revolves around the results rather than what's happened in the 90 minutes. And it was just really looking into that, really, and trying to maybe if I can pick up a few nuggets and a few things that are maybe, or simply go against the grain of what the narrative is sort of years later and maybe make people go back and watch that game and maybe change their thinking. Was the most, I mean, you're a Liverpool man now. As you say in the book, it's well documented that you've had a change of heart and there's a before and after. But was the, the game where Everton... Uh, eliminate Bayern Munich having had them softened up two years earlier by Aberdeen and, and that doesn't get enough play in the chapter Jim. I'm, I'm sorry to be critical at this early stage but you do mention us but was, was that the one where because you know the memories that, that might have been dislodged in games you played in whether that be um, in Munich against Germany or whether it be Istanbul those memories you could influence you, you were a participant but a memory that might be dislodged or besmirched when you're a kid with a bobble hat, for a certain part of the journey anyway, is that the one that you were most worried about? Well, looking back at that, not not so much. And the, and the reason I say that is because I think what, what the great thing in the book is that, and whether and I know it maybe upsets people from, from that era, and when I was speaking to Peter Reid and Andy Gray on the phone about it, the, the way football was played then, and certainly that Everton team had a mixture of physicality, direct football with good football. So in my mind, I don't think it's ever been shaped differently that that, that game was about basically 
bulldozing uh, that Bayern Munich back four into the net or almost into the Gladys Street through set pieces, long throws, uh, direct play from the goalkeeper. And so it wasn't so much that. The, the thing that was different that I found in that was that that's the way that game's always been built, you know, the power of the English and, you know, direct football. But Bayern Munich's first throw in at that game's a long throw. It's just little nuggets like that that you see. And this was no shrinking violet by a Munich team. This was Argentina at the back. This is Faf in goal. He, you know, Lerby in midfield. Some of the challenges that went on. Flugler. Yeah, Flugler. I mean, Andy Gray kicks him up the arse. He lost his boot, I think, didn't he, as well? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but no, and also, it was, it was good watching it also because of the fact that the way this game's been painted, it was a little bit more than that because I think... Those type of coaches who we think of in, you know, certainly the 80s in England is a bit, you play the same every week, you know, the same team, the same formation. There's no, you know, now we talk about, you know, tactics and systems and different players playing and rotation. But it was interesting speaking to Andy Gray because I noticed it in the first half how how split Everton's two strikers were, Sharp and Gray. Normally you want two strikers together, combine, and, and I could see that in the tape. And he said, when you're playing, you were playing against the sweeper then, so it was a big thing from Howard Kendall to actually isolate defenders in wide areas, leave the sweeper alone without protection. So even then... But let's let's stop, Jamie. D- define what you mean by a sweeper, because I know, or I'm going to suggest that what you're saying is that they had three central defenders, one of whom played behind or in front of the two centre-halves. So you're actually talking about a sweeper in a three with two wide backs, aren't you? Yes, that's what it was. It's not so much three at the back in a zonal sense. Yeah, this is, you know, defenders following strikers all over the pitch. So if if Andy Gray and Graham Sharp know they're getting man-marked, they're taking up positions so far away from each other, which basically means defenders are getting isolated and they haven't got cover, where basically the sweeper system was all about cover. Two men-to-men markers going as tight as possible and you always had that spare man behind. So if you stretch them across the width of the pitch... They're going to get isolated uh, certainly a lot more. So even just picking up little things like that shows how much thought was going into games then. And they change at halftime what you described because you know I don't want to overemphasize this because our listeners are quick. But what you've done is you've gone actually you've gone back and watched the ninety minutes once or a couple of times in each of the chapters, and therefore, and if I'm you know I don't want to betray too many of the secrets because I'd like people to buy this and read this, but you pre-note your conceptions, your ideas about the game before you see it again so that you can measure them up again, which I think is a really good technique. But you say that at half-time, they play slightly closer together, don't they, um, Graham Sharp and Andy Gray? Yeah, so so they do. So obviously that was a tactic in the first half. It's maybe not working as well as they want, the the 1-0 down, and maybe it's a case of actually, let's go back to our sort of way of doing things normally in terms, you know, the attack on the Gladys Street end. I mean, the famous half-time team talk from, from Howard Kendall, that's all remembered. Where he says what? Where he says what? You quote him. Yeah, sorry. He, he's Basically, the Gladys Street will suck the gold ball in for you. You know, that type of thing. So the Gladys Street for Everton is what the cop is for Liverpool. and Get it up there and, and the fans will draw it right in. That's what it was. I mean, this is Bayern Munich, but at that stage, you mentioned Aberdeen before. But I think we looked at the stats. I think Aberdeen had been knocked out of European competition five years in a row or five years out of six by English teams. So Aston Villa obviously won the European uh, Cup final. Uh, Aberdeen, Everton. I think Tottenham knocked them out uh, along the way somewhere as well. So at that stage, English teams' record, and especially not just in Europe, but against this Bayern Munich, they had real, real problems. 
One of the things that has emerged already in having read the book and listening to you now, perception isn't always about things becoming wrong over the years. I think that stories get told about, um, like, for example, you've established the idea that what was said about Everton by Munich from that day onwards, when you knock them out and it's in the glory years of Everton, you're about to win two titles with a, a year apart. Um, was that Everton were the, the long ball, hard merchants, and nobody, not enough was spoken about the fact that Bayern not only matched kick for kick, but tried to have it out with Peter Reid and they were bashing into the back of Andy Gray. So they weren't angels. But is part of what you've discovered, or do you think, that over the years in Britain, the media that described football, and I don't mean modern, because I'm coming on to a supplementary, have maybe not understand understood football as much, and they paint it as theatre. They're always good guys and bad guys. The foreigners are often either cheating and dodgy because they're going down all the time or they're, they're beautiful and elegant and swaying and the ball moves and they're taller than us and their chests are puffed out and man look at that strip do, do, you, do you feel because that's my perception that, that that has tainted the way that football matches have been described on the radio and television or written about over going back to the 70s and 80s onwards yeah I, I agree Graham and I think when we get into debates even now about systems and tactics and what managers do I think sometimes, even in this country, and I'm talking about punditry as well, and, and ex-players, they, they don't enjoy it. It doesn't get the juices flowing. It, it goes over the head a little bit. They don't think the game is really about that. And I think that stems going back you know, a long time when the narrative was always about the results. And even when you read our, our press, there's no, there's no real criticism or praise for managers in, in how they set teams up. I don't feel in this country, even to this day, it's all about the results. And the result just covers everything or masks everything, really. And I think there's a lot more to it than that. And I just think in England, I think with, with journalists or maybe press, and it's just the way we are, this is the way we are as a country, I suppose. But I think when you hear about managers going abroad, they say they get a lot more questions on why did you play a back three? Why did you make that substitution? Why did you play him in this role? Why did you do this? And they almost have to explain the, the, the actual idea, the tactical setup. I got that a lot from Gary as well when he was in Valencia. That's what people would really home in on. That would be never be a question for a manager here. You know, you'd never ask if Jurgen Klopp went and played four four two rather than four three three. I mean, people had mentioned it after the game, but I don't think it'd be a big debate with Klopp in the press conference. Why would you do that? What, what the extra man in midfield? What what does four four two give you against this opposition? So I think as a country, we don't get is involved in the, the, the tactical side of the game. And that's what's something that really, really gets me going. And certainly in the job I do and the, you know, the, the Monday Night Football and the Pundits, why do teams do certain things? I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten and David Goldblatt. This is Tim Parks on his classic tome, a season with Verona. 
The Bishop of Verona invited the citizens of Verona to burn the book because I'd put all the blasphemies in it. So that was obviously good for sales. You know, I, I was very, very pleased about that. I wish they'd done it. It would have been a happy memory. On the Cordova, I would go to games. There would be loads of kids coming up to me saying, you know, I've never read a book before, but I really enjoyed this. Listeners know, and I'm just stating for you, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass, but you're involved in something which is changing that. And I want you to think honestly now about the football you watched growing up, which was presented as a package. Predominantly would have been whatever ITVs, I, I lived in Scotland, so we got different, but ITV had their version, Match of the Day is the more famous version. It was presented as highlights with almost no tactical analysis whatsoever. The highlights per se were presented as the most entertaining bits. So the other bits that might have led to them, not relevant. And for many years when Match of the Day expanded, I'm going to call players out, you don't have to join in. In my opinion, there was very little tactical uh, work done by the Hanson Lawrence and Ira, in my opinion. Insufficient. I remember Luca Vialli when he left Chelsea saying, I'm going to go back to Italy and I'm going to work in television said, I'm going to do what Andy Gray is doing for Sky. This is obviously way back in, in the late 90s. Because in Italy, we only think about why did that goal go in and the referee was rubbish or bent or whatever. He said, I want the debate to be opened up. And he was in Italy. Look at Ali's mission was to go back and take what Sky was doing even then. Before the days of you and Chambo and, 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 and Gary and you being fixed, fixtures on a Monday night with Titi Henry. I want you to contrast, never mind talking about the quality of what you're doing, really the very fact that it's a staple part of the diet, and I know that our listeners, I know that they are voracious for the same thing that gets you going. The debate, our vocabulary's changed, Jamie. You know, across football appreciators, we might get it right, we might get it wrong, but the way in which we want to talk about football, positions, ideas, strategy, I don't think that's massively changed in the media, but I think the punters have changed. And, I, and I, 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 it's, you have to talk about this honestly without me trying to make you bum yourself up. Don't you recognise the change in the way in which young footballers, say over the last 20 years, have grown up compared to how you and I grew up? You were a good athlete, you were a good football player, and you bettered your football career because you wanted to re reread matches, read your position. That, so, okay, fine. But there are kids now who have grown up over 20, 25 years and we'll see it in their play, who've had a completely different vitamin diet of football analysis over their lifetime. Don't you agree that's fundamental? I, I, totally, I totally agree. I really do. I mean, a big thing I always found when I, I just stopped playing was my son was at the, the Liverpool Academy and that was uh, taken over uh, by the Barcelona influence, uh, really. Rodolfo uh, Burrell was there. And my son would come home to me and say, I'm playing number six, I'm playing number eight, I'm playing this, I'm playing that. And, then, and just these things started coming in. And you can imagine the reaction in this country when a young player says that and, oh, nonsense, this is this, this. And I just think that influence, you talk about players as well and the analysis that they get. I think the important thing, not important is so much, I used to always think it was almost like a weakness when I was a player where I couldn't identify where a player played. I used to think, well, what's his position? What does he do? 
But now that almost seems that it's like that's almost like a strength now, where you know people do float in and out of different positions, and and sometimes we see teams playing different ways with the ball, and then when without the ball, they're playing a different formation, and, and there's people in different areas of the pitch, and they're interchanging and moving, and I do think the understanding of younger players now, uh, definitely in terms of what you're talking about, but. I'm not sure if you just mentioned the punters, but I actually think supporters' understanding of the game now is a lot greater. And I don't know if that's just maybe down to social media, so we see it a lot more. But, you know, there's, as you said, you go on, you go on Twitter, every club has fan sites and uh, podcasts, and everyone's talking about the game. And, and the, the information that they give, the people out there now, as a manager, you, you, you may not just get away with results. Before it was always get results now supporters want to know what's your idea what are you trying to do they're looking at expected goals they're looking at how much possession they've had how often they've been in the opposition's penalty area and actually saying well we're winning games but we're quite lucky because we're not doing x y or z or the flip side of that could be we're not doing so well but you keep the supporters on side because now i think their actual knowledge of the game and knowing when things are going well uh, and the actual absolute uh, how much football there is in terms of Sky Sports News every day, podcasts, social media, going to the game, every game at this moment because of COVID's live on TV. I just don't think there's ever been more analysis. And I'm, uh, it actually feels like it's changed a lot since I first went into punditry. I, that was probably um, seven or eight years ago. It feels over the last four or five years, it's certainly with supporters now. Uh, and people on social media, it's just, it's going up and up, really, and it's, it's difficult to keep up. I love what you said. Now, I'm not Jamie Carragher, I've not done what you've done, but I think I've lived in Spain for a reason, I've listened, I've watched, I've benefited, I've changed my vocabulary, I've changed my understanding. You blink, miss a game, miss a decision, and the people that talk to me, either as socios, members of our podcast, or on Twitter, who, who follow Spanish football, they'll be like, this, I saw this, I saw that, I said, you're like, I missed a week. And they're all over me. You, you, you have to be on top of your game. Keep ahead of the people you're trying to communicate to, which is healthy. No, I, I totally agree. In it, and it takes me back. I treat punditry like I treated my career as a footballer. Where I, I played at Liverpool all my career because I think because of that. Because I, I never, I never gave everyone anyone an inch. It was. I'm not saying I wasn't the greatest player in the world, but no one was taking me place. And it was always I've got to keep going. I've got. I could never almost relax until it was finished and I'm a bit like that with Pundity and I agree with you if you don't watch a game or you miss the big incident you feel like you're behind the curve it's like you're almost playing catch up trying to you know, watch it and it's, it's moved on again the narrative or whatever it may be and, and that's the way I, I am with Punditry. I watch all the other shows to check what they're doing I'm, I'm across everything as much as I possibly can to not, and it doesn't mean I'm then going to be right you know I can be right I can be wrong it's an opinion but you can you can base your Assumption on having really watched it and know exactly what's going on, what's getting said, read the room, what's the reaction to certain things, and then almost give your point of view. But no, I'm I'm like that with pundit. There's new pundits coming all the time wanting to maybe take your place, or people will eventually say, "Oh, we've had enough of that." And that's why I think in my role it's very important. I want to say my role. I mean, that's it's every there's everyone's role in punditry, whether you've been a player or a journalist, but. I'm very mindful of the fact of never saying in my day. I think you can use experiences from your time, but almost never. I, I always think football's the best it is now. And in two years, it'll be better then than it is now. And the game moves on and, and you look back at your own games compared to games now. It's much better than football. And I think you've got to sort of 
keep up with how the game's moving forward and not sort of say, well, we did this and we did that. You know, it's when you talk, you see uh, the goal kicks now. I mean, I, I, it fascinates me, goal kicks now. And that's like the detail I like to go into. But you know, people, someone will lose the ball around the edge of the box and then people say, oh, we never did nothing like that. But these managers aren't idiots. They're all doing it. There's a reason for it. Sometimes it's not going to work. But what are they trying to get out of it? So that's what I'd be thinking. You know, these managers are, you know, so don't be saying, oh, we, we never lost the ball around the edge of the box. Well, you're never going to lose it around the edge of the box if you kick it long. But there's a why. What, what's the reason? Why are we doing it? You know, almost get into that rather than say, this is wrong. We never did that. Spot on. If you don't unpick it, and if you don't work at the, the what is the chess game end game, then you can't decide, well, actually, I see what... Um, uh, Nagelsmann and Bielsa and Sari and Pep are trying to do with that. And I like the idea of looking at it, but I don't fancy it actually for this squad, that player, this crowd. It's that, okay, some coaches will say, these are my principles, bollocks to you, I'm staying with the first. But if you don't try and unpick them, if you just do that, that's right, or that's, oh, that's fashionable, I must do that, or that's that's wrong, we didn't use it. Then you're never going to work out, well, what's it for? And, and I think that what's something for and you've, you caused me to go back to the last time we'll talk about the, the maybe the, the game that well, the only game that's passionate to you as a fan that Everton game there's a there's a, there's a eureka moment I can't remember from the book whether you realised it on the night as a 11 year old kid I can't remember but, but there's a eureka moment in your analysis when you're looking at who is it um, Eder one of the centre halves goes off with a, a bleeding nose and I'd seen this at Patoji when Aberdeen got knocked out Ham- Fergie's Aberdeen got knocked out by Hamburg and we'd have played off and we played on. And, and your point, I'll let you take up the narrative, your point is that I think Larrabee takes a free kick with Bayern still only having 10 men in the pitch. And, and from that moment, Everton possession of the ball and they do certain things and, and it's just not a very mature piece of thinking. And your analysis going back there reminded me of you'd be analysing it exactly the same way today if you were on your legs with Dave Jones on Sky. Just detail that incident that I'm talking about that was so crucial to the tie. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we'd make a big thing of it now if someone went off the pitch. You, you'd be well aware of it. I think probably even watching the football years ago, I mean, the commentator wouldn't even probably mention it. You'd almost not no. know that they were down to 10 men in some some way, uh, really. But you noticed that, I noticed that he went off. They then put a set piece in, in trying to slow the game down and maybe wait for the guy to come back on and help them. They, I think they take a free kick quickly before you know it, it's in Southall's hands. And Everton find themselves with long throws. Now, you're talking about one of the centre-backs, you know, three at the back, three dominant players. Again, you take advantage of that. Really, it forces the goalkeeper to come out the goal, faff, to try and deal with it because he knows the two defenders alone and the one man down can't deal with it. Ian Ullmans ends up getting thrown into the Gladys Street and then there's an empty net, I think, for, uh, for Andy Gray. So, I, But I just think at that time, it just didn't get mentioned or really spoke like that or went into that detail. Uh, really, and I just that's what we wanted to do with games, and that was the the oldest game that went back to eighty five of me as a seven year old. So it was just those things that I thought we'd be mentioning that and making a big deal of that, really, uh, and game management. There's a thorny issue now. I should look um, because we've got social questions. Um, Bet three six five. Our sponsors asked the Germany five one game after it came after a low point for England losing one 0 at Wembley. Did he a man goal? 
did you feel a corner had been turned that night? You, you were on the pitch, as you say in the book, you, you had a beautiful, devastating seven-minute cameo defending that 4-0 lead. I'm stealing your words, but it's one of the best phrases in the entire book. So after, before you answer that question, um, th- there are a couple of more. And, um, you know, we've got we've got Merrin Myrtle we're going to ask a question from, um, Gareth Scriven, Jake Garlic. And Jake Garlic says, in terms of the 5-1 in Munich... What does Jamie think of Sven as a manager? What did the players think at the time about the tactics he used? Whether they were the right ones for modern football? Does Jamie think that they underachieved or were unlucky to lose on penalties twice to a very good Brazil side? How much of a difference did injuries to key players make? There's a lot of information in that question. The sponsor's question was, after the 5-1, did you think a, a, a corner had been turned? Maybe the answers to both Jake and to 365 come in the shape of your deductions from that chapter, which is an extremely powerful chapter. And maybe when people read it, they'll find it the most surprising chapter, I think. Yeah, I mean, looking back, obviously, it was, it was a huge uh, euphoria, the press and, you know, beating Germany at a derby game, if you like, at, at that type of level. And when I look back at the game, it, it, it almost was a snapshot of why we didn't do well. I mean, that was a game that was... We should have been losing 2 or 3 one a half time. I think when I say it gave us a snapshot of why we didn't do well, we gave the ball away so much in the first half. But don't forget, this is in the middle of a season. You're in Germany. It's certainly not bacon hot. It's not in the, in the, in the Far East where I think that, that World Cup was. And you've got Scholes, you've got Gerard Beckham, three of the best passes of ball you'll probably see. But not necessarily the three passes you want together in the same team because they all make the same pass, which is always looking for that 60, 70 yard pass and diagonal ball over the top for Michael Owen. So it works a lot in this game, certainly more second half. But in the first half, the turnover in possession was the reason why we should have been 3 1 down and almost gives you a reason why when you get to those summer tournaments, the turnover in possession was just far too much. And then you, you contrast that with plays you know so well Graham of your Aston Chavis very rarely played that pass very very rarely it was always the what was the right pass for the team it wasn't about the Hollywood ball as we called it as I said these are three of the best technicians we, we've ever had and three great players but that's maybe the makeup of that team and squad whether it actually gelled together and worked together and it was proven that it didn't really uh, in terms of Sven uh, I, I don't think I ever Saw a team Sven picked and thought, what, what is that? I can't believe he's picked that team. Because you do get that with managers where they do something that you just cannot quite, quite comprehend. But he always picked the obvious team. He think the best players. So you think nothing outrageous. But did he, did he ever sprinkle a bit of stardust in any way as a manager with what he said or how he set up or throwing something different in a big game and tactically? No. I mean, he didn't... I find it difficult to criticise managers for two reasons. One, I've never been a manager. And number two, I always think when players criticise managers, I'm not a big believer in that because I think the manager, number one, has got another 20, 30 years' experience in football. He's managing, you haven't. So when I hear a player who's 25 saying, oh, the coaching's not great, or the manager's not this, or the man... I mean, I don't really listen too much. So I'm probably a bit nicer to managers than maybe other players are. But with Sven, I don't think there was anything he ever said to me, ever, in the time I was there where I thought, that's interesting, or I've learned that, or that's new. 
other managers I had, they'd always say something that make you think, whereas Sven, it was very, very, very basic. I've got to offer you something, Jamie, and I, I'm not causing an argument, but I, I want to relate what you said earlier on. You talked about understanding that and the continent managers, coaches will, will, will be asked more probing questions about their idea, about the training, about the football, about the strategy, about substitution. And you talked about Gary experiencing that at Valencia. And, and I, listen, I was at some of those press conferences, it got very heated, but they were asking, why did not, why are you here or why are you English? Why did you do that? Now, it's the manager or the coach's job to get things right. Um, I was speaking to Luis Enrique yesterday. He said, I'm here in a no, no excuses situation. He said, we're here to win. Yeah, playing well against Germany. There's no excuses in my vocabulary. We have to win tournaments. So that's very good. So the responsibility lies there. But you've talked about not wanting to criticise a manager. And I've found that in my lifetime in, in British football as an institution in British football journalism. The criticism that comes from journalism is often too personal. And in football, I think there's a culture where it's too irregular for good minds like yours, like Gary, like Terry Henry, Terry's French, but there's a culture in Britain about if you say something that's contrary to what you've experienced or what you... Th- there's, there's a preference for saying speaking euphemisms or maybe burying a criticism because we're quite a warlike culture. If you criticise somebody, it's calling out, let's write it's all off, and I'm like that. But what you learn is... Debate like that, where you're critical at the time or now, it opens up the debate. It helps change the culture. I don't think that we're particularly healthy in the fact that you'll have footballers of knowledge and worth within a club or within an uh, international team during our lifetime. I'm much older than you, but whereby they'll say things in private and they won't say them in public or they won't say them to journalists because to criticise is wrong. Whereas in other cultures, it doesn't make them better or clever, but it is different. It's worth learning from. These types of criticisms that you might have offered back then, I think, because we've interviewed Sven in this podcast, I think when he managed Mancini and their ilk, or Mihailovic or Veron, they came to him and went, manager, what's this? He talked about a big bust up he had with a 20-year-old Clarence Seedorf who came in at some day. This is, this is rubbish. And he went, OK, and... and so I worry about whether in a culturally, I don't mean you, but culturally, I think we're too slow to have at it. I think you're right. And I and I don't know if it was something to do with being brought up with Liverpool and it was almost, you know, being humble. You never get too carried away. And I always remember Pepe Reina saying to me, it wasn't so much about the manager. It was when we were having problems as a club off the pitch with American owners. And he said... Eh, because obviously it was seen as me and Steven Gerrard are the two most powerful players, if you like, and had huge influence. But in reality, we'd never be critical of anyone at the club. We were always very supportive of the club, even if it was bad. And he was saying, players in your position, this was Pepe Reina to me and Steve, he said, they'd be causing trouble. They'd be, they'd be out in the press criticising this. It just, he said, in England, everyone's so humble and everyone's so supportive of their own club. Uh, he said, this would not happen abroad really and that that was another thing when Rafa came as a manager as well was that he would be quite openly critical of his chief executive of his owner whereas we'd be like aghast could not believe he'd said these things and like this is not the Liverpool way this is not the way we do it here and not necessarily England more I was always on the Liverpool hat on 
And it was like, you don't criticise people you work with, you don't do this. But maybe, you know, what you're saying is maybe we're the ones who should be looking at ourselves a lot more. And, and not so much be critical, but maybe analyse a little bit more, push, probe, get you know, find more answers. I, I think so, because the resources that you've become to football, you and your group, people of your quality, it's now super clear. Beyond just winning, now your analysis is helping change the shape of the British game. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.